Hey, uh, turn in your Bibles, if you would, to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. I have a couple of announcements for you. Um, huddle groups are meeting throughout the valley tonight. Um, strongly encourage you. Man, it, I, I'll tell you, the, the huddle ministry here is really starting to take shape. We, we've gone recently from nine huddles to, I think, 15 right now, 16 by the end or middle of next month. Um, and other people stepping forward saying, hey, I'd like to look at maybe hosting one at my house. And it's just fantastic, the testimony that we're hearing um, through our huddle groups. How uh, the, the goal of our huddle groups is that people would be able to uh, come together and learn and study. Like, okay, we, we heard church Sunday morning. We heard Pastor Jeff. But now how, how do we, like, go do that? What does that mean to us? Like, put some meat on the bones of what we learned. And how do we walk in community with one another and live out the things that are there? Um, it's also the place where pastoral ministry and community and all those things take place. So um, if you're feeling like it, you're not really grafted in yet or you want to get to know some people, um, that is the prime place to get involved is in our huddle ministry. Also, um, our food pantry uh, will be accepting donations next Sunday. So if you're at the grocery store this week and you want to grab some non-perishables and throw them in a sack to bring, um, would really appreciate that. Um, and then finally, we, um, we, we've talked a lot recently about um, serving one another, serving within the church, using our gifts and all those things. And, and I've had people come to me and say, so where are the real needs in the church? And uh, it, it's easy for me to, over time, just start to think that the needs are kind of obvious in a lot of ways, but I know that's not always the case. <clears throat> and right now in particular, um, we're in a lot of need with regards to our setup crews that, are, that help set everything up in here before and after service, and then also our children's ministry needs. We have great needs in both of those. Um, and they're great opportunities to be able to use your gifts and to be able to serve the body and serve God's people. So um, if you guys would, would uh, uh, just jump in with us and help out in those two areas in particular, it'd be a huge blessing. Um, after service, there's going to be two people. Is down here okay, guys? Um, down here in this corner, let's say. Um, Kathy will be down here with some children's ministry applications. We do have an application process because we want to make sure our kids are protected. So um, she'll have some applications for you to be able to work with the children's ministry. And also Don Swanstrom will be down there um, for those of you that want to come and uh, uh, get, get plugged in with the setup ministry and be able to uh, help us with those things. We'd really appreciate your help in that. Thank you. Um, but that's enough. Oh, I, can we just say hello really quick? I, I always love to point out when we have good friends of ours from other churches all over the place visiting us. And uh, um, Pastor Chris Wright from the Fellowship at Boise, Idaho, is in town visiting us today. And um, Chris is a good friend who I've had the privilege with of serving for a long, long time. But he's also a, a humble yet knowledgeable guy of the word and a guy that I respect more than most pastors, honestly. Um, just a really good friend. So were you, were you, I know you're in here somewhere. Chris, where you at? There he is. Everybody, uh, warm welcome, if you would, to Chris and his family. <clears throat> yeah. Make sure you guys show him some love on the way out. Their sister fellowship in Boise, um, we benefit from one another a lot. And so um, it, it's great to, uh, to be part of that greater kingdom. So it's good to have you guys, man. So 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 through 8 is where we're going to be, though we probably won't make it past 4. But... Um, but I'm going to read it anyway, and we're going to pray. Actually, I'll just be honest. We're not going to make it past four. Um, we're, we're actually, let's be really honest. We're not going to make it past 4A, <laughs> all right? But that's a good thing. So uh, let, let's, let's read it together, and then we will, um, we will uh, uh, pray 
and we'll start this. In fact, read it with me, would you? And I know that you guys have all kinds of translations, and some of you guys got the King James and charity suffereth long. And sounds cool. No one knows what it means, but that's cool. Um, but, but let's just fill the place, if you would, with the reading of God's word. And if I could be, this is going to be annoying to you, I know. But let's stand together as we just read God's word and pray, will we? Oh, oh, bunch of whiners. Let's read together, starting in verse 4. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. Let's pray from there. God, we just come before you, Lord, with this word that many of us know really, really well, and maybe we've heard and read it a million times, Lord. But God, will your spirit speak to us fresh and anew this morning? Convict us where necessary, encourage us where necessary. God, will you help us to be able to live out these attributes, attributes of your character to a greater degree. And I pray, God, that even as we sit, Lord, we would in our own souls be postured, sitting before our rabbi, ready for your instruction, hearing the word of God, receiving it as such. And may it be fruitful in our lives. I pray, God, that the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. Oh, my King and my Redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray. And everyone said, Amen. Now you can have a seat. Love bears all things, believes all things, lets us sit down, hopes all things. 1 Corinthians 13, 4. Now, last week we spent a little bit of time talking about the context of 1 Corinthians 13, 4. And one of the things that we really nailed down is that in order to understand this passage the way it's intended, the way it's written, to really grasp what God is giving to us out of this text, we cannot divorce the context of the passage from the words themselves. We have to understand what's going on. We need to know that 1 Corinthians 13 is not just some love poem that just got thrown in willy-nilly. That it's actually in the context of chapters 1 through 12 and the passages following. And so what we saw is that 1 Corinthians 13, it's not this, oh, everybody say it with me, oh, kind of passage. It's not that. It's not that kind of passage. And in fact, don't want to destroy it for you because it certainly has some characteristics to it for sure, but it is an indictment against the church in Corinth who has been behaving in a supremely unloving way. And all of these things that Paul brings up, patience, kindness, rudeness, arrogance, all these things are things that Paul has already written about to the church in Corinth up to this point, telling them that, look, this is what you're doing and you need to stop. And he comes to the conclusion in verse 31 of chapter 12 where he says, I show you a more excellent way. And he goes in to show them to the church, hey, you're dividing over things, you're fighting over things, you're arguing over things. Stop. Let me show you a more excellent way. Love bears all things. Love believes all things. As we saw last week, if I speak with a tongue, it doesn't matter how gifted you are. If you don't have love, you're nothing. So we talked about that last week. But 
I want you to understand we're actually going to go a little bit further back with regards to context today as we begin now to go through the specifics of what does the characteristics of love, according to scriptures, what do they look like? How do they happen? What does this stuff mean? And we're going to go back even further, all the way, actually, you don't need to turn there, just track with me, all the way back to the book of Genesis to understand why this is really important. I know you just freaked out a little, just hang tight, okay? We're going to go Genesis, and then we're going to skip for a while, we'll come back up, I promise. But, but all the way back to Genesis. I actually, I just spent some time um, this week with some friends of ours going through a, a marriage series that really tied back to this very issue, and it just was really impressed on me again in a really new way, and I think it's really important to what we're going to be talking about today. And, and what I want to go back to is in Genesis 1.26, God is creating the earth, and God is talking with God. Now, he's not schizophrenic, he's not uh, insane, none of those kinds of things. He's the Trinity, that thing that's so hard to understand, but yet totally true that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three in one. And all three, Scripture shows us, are involved in creation. Colossians speaks about how Jesus made all things, holds all things together. Genesis 1 talks about how the Spirit moved over the waters. And right in the very first verse, we have God created heaven and earth. So we see all three of them are in community together in the same way we are here in community. And creation is happening. And God speaks amongst the Godhead, says, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. He says right there, we're going to create man differently than everything else. And the way we're going to do it is we're going to make man in the image of us, in our likeness. That is a concept that the more I think about it, the more I see it, the bigger deal it is. And the more I think we tend to just push it aside in ways we ought not. We are created. You are created in the image of God. And what it says, in his likeness, in other words, there's something about the way we've been created that makes us like God. That is not blasphemous to say, that's biblical. That there's something about us that we were created with the intention that when an outside person would look at a person, would look at those in fellowship with God, they would say, there's something that reminds us of God. There's something godly, you might say. In the same way that our own children, we might look at them and go, oh, you look just like your mom. You look just like your dad. Well, God created Adam and Eve in the image of God. Their whole job really, is to reflect God's glory, to to be like God. And so then Satan comes along. And Satan comes to Eve, and he does that first temptation. And what is it that he says to her? He says, if you eat of this fruit, you will be what? Like God. Well, she's already like God, right? Isn't that what that says? He says he's already created them in his likeness, in his image. But Satan pitches it in a really different way. And this is really crucial for our understanding today. What Satan does is he says, if you disregard God's will and you just feed yourself, you just go after what you want. Don't worry about what God wants for you or what God's plan for you is or God's word for you is. Put that aside. You can be like God and satisfy your own desires. You can be like God and live totally and completely for yourself. And that was the temptation right there. And the scriptures say, so when woman saw that the tree was good for food, saw that it was a delight to her eyes, and that the tree was to be desired as to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she gave some to her husband Adam who was there with her. So she saw this and she wanted it. There was something desirable about it. 
And Satan's telling her, look, you can be like God and have it all yourself. Not be like God and follow him, but be like God and follow you. That was the temptation. And ladies and gentlemen, that is the lie that we have bought into hook, line, and sinker ever since. That we can be our own God. That we can call our own shots. That we can go our own way. That we can set what God has for us aside. And that we can be happy by seeking what we want what we find desirable, what we like, the things that we're after. Forget what Jesus says about if you want to find your life, what does he say? You have to lose it. But no, 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 Satan says, no, there's another way. You can be happy, you can have it all. Just push God's will aside and go for it. And our culture has totally bought that. Satan is the father of lies, and our culture has completely bought into that. Do what you want, find your own self, build your own life, find your own way, Live your best life now. You can have it your way. All that kind of stuff. And so are we happy? Just Google it. Are we happy? No. We're not happy. We're not happy. We have more connections and more money and more stuff. We are wealthier and fatter than we've ever been in the history of the world. And we're more depressed. We're more anxious. We're more fearful. We're more worried. And we're more discontent and unhappy than we've ever been before. We just are. Uh, Anti-depression medications and, uh, not subscriptions, what's that word? Prescription, through the roof. Anxiety treatments, all of these kinds of things. Through the roof, depression, all of this stuff. And our answer to that usually is, well, I need more. So I need to go find more of what I want because apparently I don't have enough to keep me happy. So now I need to go do more. And it becomes this completely, and sometimes I don't even know, I think it becomes so natural to us, sometimes we don't even know we're doing it. Just go after self, feed self, get what I need. I need, I need, I need, I need. That's the lie that the father of lies has has given us, and we've bought into it completely. But Paul comes in 1 Corinthians 13, in the last verse of chapter 12, and says, I will show you a more excellent way. Because as the scriptures go on, the scriptures declare to us that when we come to Jesus, and this is a message to Christians, this is a passage to Christians, And in this message, in this passage, God comes to us and he said, look, when you come to Jesus, when you get saved, your life changes. In fact, we use the phrase, we die to what? Self. If any man follow me, lay down his life, pick up his cross and follow me, deny self. So there's something about coming to Jesus that that at its very core, at its very foundation, is a refusal of those attitudes that we've had all along. It is a repentance about seeking ourselves all the time, about living for ourselves and putting ourselves first and pushing God's will aside and being our own gods and saying, I can't save myself. I'm a really bad savior. And so I repent from this. I, I can't do this anymore. I'm going to turn away from this and I'm going to follow Jesus. That's what it means to come become a Christian. That's what you're doing when you get saved and become a Christian. And what happens when we do that? Well, the, the scripture talks about the fact that, that God has put his spirit within us, that our whole lives after that become a living sacrifice, that he says actually in Romans chapter 10, let no one seek his own good but the good of his neighbor. He says in Philippians that we're to esteem others better than ourselves. He lays out the model, how Jesus 
did not see the Godhead as something to be desired or clung to, but he humbled himself and took the form of a man that suddenly we live differently than we did before. And the primary change in that kind of life is not the moral rules part, it's the lordship part, that we are no longer desiring to be lord of our own lives, but that we recognize that there is a true and living God who is Lord, and we desire to follow him. And so we deny self, pick up the cross, as the scriptures say, and we follow him. And so our whole life from that moment is to become this continual act of worship. And that doesn't mean that our whole life we walk around with our hands lifted singing songs. What that means is, though that is worship, what that means, though, is that for the rest of our life, we have laid ourselves down on the altar, if you will. That selfishness, that me first, all of those things. We've laid those things down and offered that. It is an offering to God, pleasing and acceptable to him. Our reasonable sacrifices, Romans says, to God, that we might live according to his word, according to his way, living for God first and then others with self a very distant third. That's what it means to be a Christian. And so we're called then to reflect God. Adam and Eve were created to be in fellowship with God and to live in his image and his likeness to reflect God. And so now we, we, we sinned, we fell, we live for our own glory, our own likeness. And then we come to a point of repentance. We turn away from those things and say, God, I want to live for you. That's what it means to become a Christian. And so now by the power of the Holy Spirit that he puts inside us, we now live for the glory of God. And so that's our job. That's what it is that we're here to do. So the important question then is, just by way of review, we covered this, but it's been since like December 1st is when we really covered this. What does that mean? Like it's just Christian language in a lot of ways. Whatever. What does it mean to glorify God? Well, we talked about the fact that Moses, remember the story of Moses, way back in the Old Testament, he says, God, show me your what? Glory. God, show me your glory. And God says to him, well... It's Exodus 33, no man can see my face and live, um, but I'll let you see the back. I'm going to put you in this rock, and I'm going to sort of cover you up, because I, my holiness, you, you, you can't handle the truth, so to speak. And he says, it was his line first, and he says this, and he puts him in the rock, and he says, I'm going to let you see just the back. And Exodus 34 gives detail for us of what God did when he displayed his glory. In Exodus 34, it doesn't say that God came and said, check out these shoulder blades, look at these biceps. Like that wasn't God's glory. It wasn't this physical thing that he was trying to show him. When God comes and displays his glory, it says in Exodus 34, 5, the Lord descended in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, and here's what God said, this is God declaring his glory to Moses, showing him his glory. He says, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. Now, you advanced readers, you just heard 1 Corinthians 13. That's what God says. I'm going to show you my glory. And he declares his nature. His characteristics. This is what makes me glorious. I am patient. I abound in mercy. I am slow to anger. I don't put up with sin. I am just. 
but I'm good, I am loving. He declares his nature, the very characteristics of what make him him. That's what his glory is. And so when Paul comes in 1 Corinthians 10 and says, hey, do all things, whatever you do, do all things to the glory of God. Well, what does that mean? How do we do that? Well, what we talked about, and go back and listen if you missed it. It was December 1st when we covered this. But to live for the glory of God means that we live in such a way that we bring to life, we manifest the characteristics of God. We reflect God's glory. That's mankind's call. So in everything we do, we do it in such a way that it reflects the character and nature of God. So in our business dealings, we are loving and we are patient. In our personal relationships, we're slow to anger, abounding in mercy. All of those things, in whatever it is we do, in your golf game, in your softball league, whatever you do, you're called to reflect God at all times in the way that you handle yourself. That's what it means to glorify God. That's what it means. We live in such a way as to reflect God's character. And think of the story, right? So Moses is up on the hill. God declares his character to him. And then Moses comes down the hill. And what's going on with his face? It's glowing. It's reflecting the fact that he was in the very presence of God. And in fact, Moses does something we are commanded not to do. He covers his face with a veil. And he hides this glow that he has about him when he comes down there. But Jesus says to us, what? Let your light shine before all men, that men might see your good works and do what? Glorify God in heaven. So Christians are called to live in such a way that we reflect God's character. And when people see us, they should see something of God about us. They should see something of God in us. Even in the way we behave and operate and work with other people, there should be something that is truly godly. God-like. I mean, we're even called Christians, right? That's little Christs. That's what that very thing means. And so when Paul comes in in 1 Corinthians 12, he talks about the gifts of the Spirit, and he even calls them what? Manifestations. And he calls the body of Christ, the church, he calls the church the body of Christ. What's he saying? He's saying the church is going to be what brings glory to God because the church is going to manifest God. People are going to watch the church and how it acts and how we interact with one another, and they're going to be like, that's different. That's not the selfishness we see everywhere else. That is godly. I want to be a part of that. I want to learn about that God and that they would then give glory to God in heaven. And then they become godly people who begin to reflect the character of God. And then the presence of God, the physical manifestation of God, spreads all over the earth through his church. That's what we're called to do. That's what this is all about. Now, knowing this helps us immensely in understanding 1 Corinthians 13. So there's a couple of things, though, that will also help us in understanding 1 Corinthians 13. We need to more clearly define what love is or isn't in here because we live in a culture that has very different definitions for this. So um, 1 Corinthians 13, as we said before, it's not a Valentine's Day type of love. It's not that mushy, all heart chocolate, that kind of stuff. It's not that kind of love at, at all. Um, I didn't bring any more visuals for you this week like we did last week. Don't worry. But, but here, here's something that you, will help you understand. In the Corinthian culture and in Greek language and literature, there were two other words for love that Paul could have used when he wrote this passage that were really common really common phrases that everyone would understand and know and they could have gone back to. And those are words that, that just are, they're very common in Greek language. The first one is eros, 
which it would have been weird if he'd used that word for this passage. Eros is passionate love. You think of love between two lovers or love between a husband and a wife, a phrase they are very familiar with because they're in Corinth. So remember, the city of Corinth is right at the base of the Acro-Corinth, that big mountain. And what's on top of the mountain? It's a temple to Aphrodite, goddess of love. But erotic, passionate, which is in a lot of ways a selfish, give me, give me, I want to feel good, I want to experience kind of love. And so the Corinthian church, super familiar with that. It shouldn't be lost on us at all that, that Paul writes this dissertation, if you will, on love to that particular church at the basis where that particular goddess is worshipped. But that's not the word he uses, and we're thankful for that because that would be weird. Amen? But there was another one that would seem like it could fit. It's the word phileo. Um, it's from which we get the word Philadelphia, which is the city of brotherly love. That's what that means. That, it's, it's like a friendly love. It's a buddy. It's a friendship love. It's, and that was one that we would look at and we'd go, well, that would seem to fit. That's a good love. Friend love. Jesus is our friend. That would be a good love. But he doesn't use that word either. The word that he uses is the word which is common to us now because most of us grew up in church and you've seen it on quilts and things like that. You've been to agape feasts and things like that, but it's the word agape. But, but in this culture, the word agape was hardly ever used. It rarely appears in, Corinth, in Greek writing, Greek literature, stuff that exists to this day. It's not a word that is used very often at all. Very, very rare. And the reason for this is, much like we today, the writers there are using the word that is out of their normal usage and context in such a way as to say, the love I'm going to talk to you guys about is really different than what you are familiar with. It's not the kind of love that you experience or see or live out in the world around you. It's different than that. It's much different than that. And so in the same way, we need to separate what love means from the context that we live in now culturally. And we could talk for hours about that. We won't, I'm going to just give you four quick things that I want you to understand before we dive into them, that we can just kind of have a foundation to build from as we go into the characteristics of what love is. The first one is this, the love described in chapter 13 is God's love. It's important to understand. There is an origination of this love, and it's God's. This is love that is intended to model that love. So, so we're not talking about just love in general or love between friends or love between a husband and wife. We're talking about God's love for us. That's really, really important that we understand this because love today tends to be more um, conditional. I will love you as long as you are lovely to me. So, so I love you because you're beautiful. I love you because you do this for me. I love you because you feel this, you make me feel this way. And as long as those things continue, man, I love you and I am in love with you. But a lot of times when those things stop, when that type of account, if you will, goes bankrupt and those emotions aren't coming back that help spurn our love to begin with, well, now we struggle and we're like, well, I don't feel loving anymore towards you. And so love becomes very conditional. As it was said in the, the marriage series we went through this weekend, it's contractual. I will give you my love as you are giving your love to me. But once that contract is broken, I'm no longer required to give. And that's not the kind of love that is talked about here. Leon Morris says this. Listen real carefully to this. This love of God is a love for the utterly unworthy. It is a love which proceeds from a God which is himself love. 
It is a love lavished on others without a thought as to whether they are worthy to receive it or not. It proceeds, listen, from the nature of the lover, not the merit of the one loved. So catch that. The love described here has nothing to do with the person receiving love. It has everything to do with the person giving love. Because that's the love of God, is it not? That's what grace and mercy means. He poured his love on us, though we were unloving. Romans 5, in this is love. God has demonstrated his love for us, that while we were yet sinners, undeserving of God's love, Christ died for us. Greater love can no man have for his friends that he would lay down his life like that. So that's the kind of godly love here. It is not that same kind of love. And in that sense, 1 Corinthians 13 is really just a commentary on what Jesus says in John chapter 13, verse 34, where he says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, but how? He says, just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. And by this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. So the love here is a love that originates with God. And he says, and I want you to manifest, to mimic to bring to life this love everywhere. And when people see this love, it's by that they'll know you're one of my disciples. So know that. This is God's love. The second thing is this. It's not an emotion. Love, number two, love is not an emotion. It is not an emotion. Now, our English translations, when you're translating from one language to another, sometimes there's difficulty in getting the, the, you know, words mean different things and it's hard. And this is a difficult thing in English to get out of the original Greek language because all of the words that we're going to be studying that describe love in 1 Corinthians 13 are adjectives. Love is kind. Love is patient. You guys know what adjectives are, right? Tracking with me? We have some students in here. Adjectives, they describe something. So all the words that are in here describe love. Love is patient, love is kind, love is all those sorts of things. But it's not that way in the Greek language, which this was originally written in. In the Greek language, these words are all verbs. All of them. So, so the emphasis is not on what love is like or what love feels. The emphasis is on what love does. Massive difference between what we experience today. Amen? Huge difference. These are intentional actions that are not, well, John Stott says this, the love expressed here in 1 Corinthians 13 is a servant of the will, not a victim of the emotion. So this, it's not like love feels patient. No, it's no, love does patience. That's what it says. Love does kindness. Love does not envy. That's the way this is written. So this is an action. It is not an emotion at all. Number three, it is habitual. Not only are they written um, in, in verbs, but also these things are written in what's referred to as, English nerds will get this, but present continuous tense. And, and so what it means is it's not like a one-time thing. It, it's something that becomes a habitual part of our life, something we grow at. So love keeps on being patient. Love is patient until the end. Love is kind and continues to be kind. It's not a one-time thing. It's something we grow in. And number four, finally, love is not sentimental. It's strong. Love is not sentimental. It's strong. Love tends to be one of those things, just to be honest, guys, we don't tend to talk about love with one another a ton, right? We just don't. 
We don't get together and, you know, shoot things and talk about our love. We just don't. I've never been fishing with anyone and had a long discussion about love, ever, ever. Unless it was I love fishing, right? <laughs> that's, that's the truth. But here's the thing. Alistair Begg says this, and, and I know his heart. I hope you will trust it with me, those of you that might find some of this maybe even slightly chauvinistic. It's certainly not his heart or his, his stance. But he says this. The love expressed here is vibrant, strong, and if I may say, manly. It is not soft, sentimental, or feminine. There is a vibrancy. There is a strength about it. It's not cuddling and coziness. These are hard things. These are not, ooh, baby kitten. (laughs) You know what I mean? These are love shows kindness. These are lean forward love, actions, moving forward. Still probably won't talk to you a ton about love in the fishing boat, guys, but it is, right? So with those things in mind, we, we have a good basis of understanding, right? We understand that, that this is God's love, that God is love, that we, the redeemed, are God's children, and that our responsibility is to glorify God, to bring to life, to manifest his characteristics to the world around us. And like John 13 says, that by this love, As we love in the same way God has loved us, people will know that we are disciples. So keep in mind, this is love that's being talked about. It's primarily between people in the church, okay? It's not husband and wife love. It's not boyfriend, girlfriend love. It's, hey, you the church, this is how I want you to interact with one another. That's the primary emphasis of what's being said. So with that being said, let's jump right into it, and we won't get far. But number one, love is patient, Are you King James people? Charity suffereth long. And if you wonder why we don't use King James, that's why. But uh, poetic and beautiful, right? Love the King James. If you're reading it, read it. Read read what you'll read. But, But we teach from the ESV. Love is patient. Now, let's clarify. This doesn't mean that love can hang out in long lines at the grocery store and not get frustrated. That's not what this means. Um, If you define this, uh, here's a good definition that I found. Love is, and catch this, love is a holding intention in our minds before we give rise to passion. It's a holding intention in our minds before we give rise to passion. So, So in other words, paraphrase, love has a long fuse. That's what this means. Now remember, what's God's character? I am abounding in mercy. What did he say? Slow to anger. These passages are parallel. It's important you understand that. And so here, love is patient. We're not talking about circumstances. It's not saying that patient can go to the DMV and not get worked up. What it's saying here is speaking about people. Remember the church in Corinth. People are dividing. They're fighting. They're they're coming to disagreements over things, and they're ending relationships, and they're separating from one another. So we're talking about interpersonal relationships. And he says, love waits patiently. Love uh, doesn't argue and divide. Love is in it for the long haul. It doesn't go into this continuing practice of ending relationships every time it's offended, of running off and disappearing every time someone's rubbed the wrong way. It hangs in there, and it makes the decision to bite the tongue, to swallow the emotion, and choose not to rush to passion. 
And we are super good at rushing to passion. If that was a spiritual gift, we'd all have it. It's just true. We have the superpower of rushing to bad conclusions and those things. I mean, it's just the way that it is. And he's saying, this is different. Love is different. Love doesn't blow up. It's patient. It hangs in there and is slow to react to things that go down. Now, this kind of love can be misconstrued as weakness. This can be viewed as love lets people walk all over you. But it's not true. Remember, the idea here is bringing to life the characteristics of Jesus Christ. And so what does Jesus say? And here's, here's a cultural thing that's really, really interesting about this. One of the most famous Greek philosophers, well-known famous guy, Aristotle, he had a teaching that was broadly accepted throughout these Greek areas where Corinth was, and he would say this, the Greek virtue is the refusal to tolerate insult or injury and to strike back in retaliation at the slightest offense. That was the Greek virtue. We do not tolerate offense and we strike back right away. That was his teaching. Well, but Jesus says when you get saved, you're not the nation of Greece anymore. You are a new nation, a holy nation. And so what does Jesus say about this? Would Jesus agree with Aristotle? Well, 1 Peter 2 says, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. And when he suffered, he did not threaten but he continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. 1 Peter 2, 23. That's a big verse. He says, look, Jesus was in a court that was a sham. And they were throwing barbs at him like crazy that were untrue. And he could have gone into self-justification mode. And he could have gone into the, oh yeah, and started pointing fingers and dividing and all those things. But he was patient and he hung in there. And instead of going in and defending himself, he trusted God who judges justly. And God who will, as he says, as part of his character in Exodus 34, he will not be or turn his back on sin. He deals with it. That's what we're called to do. This is a huge problem in our day and age, especially with regards to social media. This is a massive, massive, massive issue because it, we are connected to more people than ever before, which means it becomes easier to be offended than ever before. And, and we have these posts and we have this, this world now where we have 900 friends. That was my Facebook page before I killed it yesterday. Some of you are one less friend, I should warn you. I didn't dump you, I dumped me. Me and Facebook broke up. And in the scriptures, it talks about the fact, or, or what we're seeing here, this idea of love being patient. you got to understand, in our day and age, we can sit at a computer, and it's like being at NORAD. We can just launch missiles. Gone. Take, and people will say things to people that they would never say to your face. Ever. Ever would say to your face. And I've seen people say things that are just unbelievable. And so then you, you get offended. And you can't read tone, so people will write things, and we all sit at our screens, and we judge from sometimes thousands of miles away even. And so we watch this stuff go down, and now we have an opportunity. The missiles are coming, so what do we do? Respond. And we start launching missiles back, and we're just shooting bombs and totally tearing each other down and getting worked up. You ever feel that? You ever done that? Social media, you see something, you just get worked up. If not, um, I don't know, public radio 
uh, news radio, those kind of things. You just, and we judge and watch and just get so frustrated about all this thing. And then we have the other option, which may be worse, is that we can just go unfriend, problem over, unfriend. And it's really indicative of our culture. Look at marriages. I'm with you as long as you're loving with me. Now you're not loving. You're throwing barbs. I don't like this. Unfriend. I'm out, right? Just side note, and we even talked about this some last night, but I mean, you, social media and stuff, we ha- it's even redefined what friend even means. It really has. I mean, I, I had, before I deleted my Facebook account yesterday, because I was just done with it, the, and I've wanted to deal with, I wanted to ditch it a long time ago, but a lot of you guys connect with me through that and email me. But I have an email address. I still want to hear from you. I'm just not there anymore, so I'm sorry. But, but I had 900 and something people that were my friends on my Facebook page. I can't possibly manage, maintain, and not offend 900 and something people. And it just got to where it just seemed like it's, and let's face it, I'm goofy. I am. Like, I'm going to goof off. I do a lot. This week, I posted a photo or a video of me after having teeth drilled, talking like this because I was so numb. It's just, it's just what I do. So it, a lot of it is a self-control issue for me. I'll be quite honest with you. A, a lot of it is. It's just like if you're an alcoholic, don't have alcohol in the house. You know what I mean? So, um, and, and it's different for me because some of the things that I do can even reflect poorly on the church, which reflects poorly even on you. You're following that idiot? Did you see what he did? You know, that kind of stuff. So, so, so I, just, I killed it. But, but the truth of the matter is, is you're trying to juggle 900 friends. But you don't have 900 friends. You just, I mean, look at Jesus. He had 70 people that he interacted with. He had 13 people that he was really close with. But even out of that, he had three people that he told everything. And we should kind of be careful about how much, this is what I've learned too, just be careful about how much access we allow to everyone else in the world because people will take this, this place where they can speak with authority into your life from a thousand miles away. Happened to me yesterday and spun me out. I'm just like, what did I do? I don't understand. And all this, and, and then I'm just inside, I, I got people-pleasing tendencies, so it starts to eat me up and finally I'm just like, what am I doing? If we were in the same restaurant, he wouldn't even speak to me. And I'm going to listen to that. Supremely unloving. Where were we going with this? It's not about me. Yes. You guys are being supremely patient with me right now. (laughs) But the reality of the truth is this, is that we're in a place where when we get offended, our initial tendency tends to be to remove ourselves from the relationship. Happens in churches all the time. We're together and committed until. And God says, no, I am patient. I am forbearing. I drag in, I hang in there. I suffer long. And God wants us to manifest his love for us in the same way in how we react with one another in the church, which means that we got to stop that. We got to, if, I mean, stay on faith. I don't care about that. But, but the, the mentality between one another where we're friends until we get hurt has got to go. You can't be friends with everybody, but you need to be friendly to people. And we've got to stop this mentality where we're like, he offended me, I'm out of here. It's one of the drawbacks, honestly, of having, there's blessings to having multiple churches and there's drawbacks. In Corinth, there was nowhere else they could go. But it's not the case anymore. And we shouldn't be like that. Those are bad reasons. 
leaving a church over an argument is a bad reason to leave the church. There's, it, it doesn't mean you just, just let them walk all over you. There's biblical steps to go through when you've been offended. But you're going in love to restore someone, not in justification to shoot missiles back. I'm going to burn him to the ground. And it never makes you feel good. Maybe just for a second. Does it look like I'm carrying things? I'm really not. <laughs> I'm really not. <laughs> I'm truly not. Because the honest truth is I, I feel freer than I have in a long time. And I have a lot of free time. You don't believe me at all, do you? It's true, but it's true. And all those times of, oh, when I see him, I'm going to say. It's just not healthy for us. And God says, I don't want you to be like that. You're going to be patient and long-suffering. You're going to hang in there. Why do we have to do that? 2 Peter 3, 9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises. Some count slowness, but he is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all would reach repentance. He loves you, and so he has put up with a lot of your junk and a lot of my junk because he wanted to save us. And now he wants us to do the same thing in response for others. He wants us to be long-suffering with one another. He wants us to be in there for the long haul in how we operate right here, this church, Heritage Christian Fellowship, because he's like that. There was a, a, a guy, his name was Robert Ingersoll. He was a 19th century, um, really well-known atheist, would go on the speaking circuit, and he would speak, and he would try to convince people that God doesn't exist. And he said... Um, he had this, this little spiel that he was known for that he would do in all of his teachings where, or his, his lectures where at a certain point he would say, I tell you what, I'll give God five minutes to just go ahead, strike me down for all the things that I'm saying. And he would look at his watch and he would, I don't know, set the clock or whatever, whatever he did to be able to track his five minutes. He would go on with his speech and at the end of the five minutes he would look and he would say, he would use that, it's, it's a really flimsy argument, but he would use that as, see, God doesn't exist. That, that's what he would do until famously there was a young guy at one of his lectures who responded to him famously and he said, sir, do you, let me get this right, do you think that you can exhaust the immeasurable grace of God in only five minutes? <laughs> it's true, man. God has been so patient for us because he desires people be saved. He desires that people be saved. And then number two, God does this. He saves people through patience coupled with kindness. And this will be a shorter one, I promise, but love is kind. Romans 2.4 actually links the two together, as do many passages. Romans 2.4 says, Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Kindness and patience are inseparable. Did I say impatience? Patience. Kindness and patience are inseparable. Um, the idea is, in patience, we refrain from doing what maybe the selfish flesh wants to do when we're offended, and instead we step forward with kindness. That's, that's what that means. Ephesians 4.32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as Christ forgave you. Because kindness doesn't concern itself with its own rights. Kindness is concerned with the rights of the person being shown Kindness. When the world looks to like lash out and tear down, kindness looks to reach out and build up. J.B. Phillips' translation of the New Testament, which you guys should get. It's phenomenal. Um, it's just a great read. Um, he says that kindness looks for a way of being constructive. 
So we're patient and forbearing and instead reaching forward with kindness even when it's not deserved. One of the greatest examples of this, and we'll sort of close with this, I think. Yeah, close enough. We'll close with this. It's been exampled or modeled for us by Abraham Lincoln, you know, famous American president. Abraham Lincoln, when he was a lawyer, before he was president, he had a, um, he had a rival in Illinois. It was a lawyer by the name of Edwin Stanton. And Edwin Stanton and Abraham Lincoln were polar opposites. Edwin Stanton did not like him. Saw that Lincoln was a rising star and wanted to attach himself to it for his own benefit, but, but didn't like him at all. In fact, he famously called him once a giraffe. And then for a long period of time would refer to him as the Illinois gorilla. And there was even a famous story where there was an expedition being launched from America to go to Africa to get a gorilla and bring it back to America for a zoo or whatever. And he said, you don't need to go all the way to Africa. We've got one in Illinois. And that's, that's kind of who he was. Um, Stanton's, um, one of Stanton's aides, late, years later, after the Civil War, um, said this about, uh, about the two of them. No two men were ever more utterly, irreconcilably unalike. The secretness which Lincoln wholly lacked, Stanton had in a marked degree. The charity which Stanton could not feel coursed from every poor in Lincoln. Lincoln was for giving a wayward subordinate 70 times 7 chances to repair his errors. Stanton was for either forcing him to obey or cutting off his head without more ado. Lincoln was calm and unruffled as the summer sea, even in moments of grave peril. Stanton would lash himself into a fury over the same condition of things. Stanton would take hardships with a groan, but Lincoln would find a funny story to fit them. Stanton was all about dignity and sternness, but Lincoln about simplicity and good nature. So they were polar opposites, forced to work together for a season while they were in Illinois, but life separated them, and it would be years later when they would come back together again. The next time that Stanton would see and actually shake hands with Abraham Lincoln, Abraham Lincoln would be president of the United States, which had to be a little bit humbling. And at the time, the Civil War was going on, and Lincoln was faced with a really difficult decision. He had to appoint a minister of war during one of the more difficult wars our country has ever faced. And who does he appoint? Edwin Stanton. People flipped out. His own aides, what are you doing? How can you possibly put that guy on your cabinet? How can you possibly appoint him to that position at such a grave time as this? And Lincoln's response was, it's simple. He's the best man for the job. And he appointed him to a really important position at a really important time. Incredibly forbearing and very kind. Well, the story goes on to tell, as you guys know, Abraham Lincoln was assassinated. And when he was in the hospital and pronounced dead, standing by his bedside was Edwin Stanton. And Edwin Stanton said famous words. You've probably even heard them, just didn't know it was his and didn't know the backstory. But when Lincoln died, he said, there lies the greatest ruler of men the world has ever seen. Now he belongs to the ages. The love, the godly character that Abraham Lincoln continued to pour on a man who had no right to it at all, had no right to it at all, won him over. It, it defeated selfishness. It defeated pride. It covered a multitude of sins. And that's the kind of love that we're called to enact. That's the kind of love that we're called to exhibit. As Colossians 3 says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, 
meekness, and patience. We don't have time to go any further, but as we do go forward, you're going to see something. You're going to see in, in the next characteristics as we go through. I mean, look, these are hard. Like we, it's easy for us to go, yeah, I see it in the Bible. I see how Jesus did it. It's easy for us to believe, get inspired by a story. Yeah, that's what we're supposed to do. But it is hard to do this stuff, is it not? Honestly, it works against every fiber of our being sometimes. We don't want to be that guy. So, so if you're going to do this, if you want to take seriously the call of God to his church to show this kind of love to one another and model it for the world around us, you're going to have to do two things. You're going to ha- you will not be able to do this if you don't do two things. Number one, you've got to be with Jesus. You've got to spend time with Jesus. He's the source of this love. You cannot give this kind of love if you are not habitually spending time first with Jesus himself. The verse we've been hanging on a lot lately, 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, And we all with unveiled face, remember the Moses story? We all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. As we behold him, we become like him. You've got to spend time with Jesus. You start seeing how Jesus was so compassionate. How can I not be? He was so patient with me. How can I not be? You've got to, broken record, I know, you've got to spend time with Jesus. You have to. There's a verse that talks about when we see Jesus forever in eternity. It says, and when he appears and when we see him, we'll what? We will be like him. But, but, But there's truth to that now. That as we behold him, as we study him, as we pray, as we spend time in his presence, we become like him. From one degree of glory to another, we become like the character of God. And the second thing is this, uh, you, you got to depend on the Holy Spirit. Because that verse goes on to say, you know, we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed from the same image, one degree of the glory to the other. And then it goes on to say, for this comes from the Lord, the Spirit. So this is a work of the Holy Spirit. This is not a, all right, from now on, I'm going to buckle down and I'm going to be more loving. This is a, Holy Spirit, make me more loving. This is a work of God. This is more about us submitting to God's word and to God's spirit and allowing him to manifest his love through us. Not, not this, I'm going to, but Lord, I'm the potter, you're the clay. Have thine own way. Mold me and make me after thy will, while I am waiting, yielded, and steel. Still. Steel. No. Still. Steel, that's hard, doesn't bend. No. Be pliable. Um, these are hard things, but with God, all things are possible. So why don't we just stand and pray that thing very right, right now. God, will you make us more loving? Lord, will you make us more kind? Will you give us the patience that you have? Lord, help us to not be those who fly off the handle. Help us, Lord, to be able to maintain friendly and godly relationships with everyone. In this church in particular, God, I pray, Lord, that you would help us, Lord, to manifest your character. And so, Lord, in asking that, Lord, I ask that you would grant us, Lord, the discipline of devotion of spending time with you, of being in your word, of learning with you and studying of you. 
I pray, God, that that would be more and more habitual in our lives and that as we behold you, you will continue as you promised to do to take us from glory to greater glory. And I pray, God, that your Holy Spirit would have its way with us. Lord, that you would lead us and work through us and that even in the giftings and things that we use, Lord, in everything that we do, we we do it in such a way that brings you glory. That people might see you, not us. Help us, Lord, to stick it out in relationships and to show grace. To not cling to our own pride too tightly, but instead to cling to you as our identity. Help us to lean on you in all things, even when it's difficult. And I just pray, God, that in the times that we fail and we will, Lord, you would grant us repentance and humility. Lord, be with your people. You guys, sing sing this with me. Have thine own way, Lord. Have thine own way. Thou art the potter, I am the clay. Mold me and make me. Mold me and make me after thy will. While I am waiting, yielded and sing that again. Have thine own way, Lord, have thine own way. Thou art the potter, I am the clay. Make this your prayer as you sing it. Mold me and make me after thy will. While I am waiting, yielded and still. God, I pray that you would do just that. Lord, help us to be pliable. Help us to be moldable. Comfort us, Lord, as you're doing that. It's uncomfortable so many times. But God, encourage us, Lord, because we know that when we see you, we will be like you. And so may that be our end game and our focus, that we would be like you. That when people see us, when people see this church, they would say there's something godly about those people. And may they not give glory to our church or to us. May they give glory to you, for you are worthy of it. Thank you for your patience with us. Thank you for your kindness shown to us, for the repentance you've granted us. And I pray that as these guys go, Lord, as they go about their week, that they would carry you upon their faces. That there would be nothing veiled, Lord, but that they might see you in them. May we truly go as the image and likeness of God. In Jesus' name we pray.